Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. Comedy has been part of Costa's journey since he was a child. After studying it in New York, Costa decided to focus on it as a career. Many years of hard work has allowed Costa to write and perform his own comedy shows. Costa's not only a successful comedian, but a successful entrepreneur and author. Up next on Slepsvant, we've got Costa Karastravrakis. So Costa, thank you so much for your time on live in studio on the Slepsvant podcast today. Tell us where do we find you in the world? How are you doing and what's happening in your life? There's too many questions. How are you doing? How am I doing? I'm cold. Joburg is freezing, but I'm very, very well. Super Hashtag blessed. Um, <laughs> where can you find me? Yes. Very simple. Instagram, TikTok, Costa Comedian. And you are in Joburg, South Africa with me right now. I'm a Joburg guy, born and bred, mm. stuck here, love it. I'm one of those freaks that loves Joburg. I love Joburg too. Jeez, like you meet the most amazing people. We've got diversity here. We've got yes. weather here. We've got food here. Why would I want to be anywhere else? Yes. I mean, I lived overseas, right? And for me... I'd much rather have load shedding for the overseas listeners. Google what load shedding is, is in South Africa. I'd much rather have load shedding than living with roommates that you can never get rid of and you never <laughs> have your privacy with because you're always walking on eggshells. Give me load shedding any day. <laughs> 100%. 100 Good to see you. Good to be here. So now let's rewind to the beginning of your story. So the hybrid version of your comedian and your entertainment and your career. So when I was four or five years old, people used to say, Costa, what do you want to be when you, when you big? And I immediately knew I wanted to be a clown. And then of course that gets beaten out of you. And then before you know it, you're in business school studying uh, honors in marketing, but I'm the class clown. I'm the one who's having the most fun. And uh, then I always had a dream to to study it, to study drama, comedy, something of some sort. And uh, you know what it is with dreams, they nag at you and they keep knocking on the door. And career-wise, things were stale, things were stagnant. Um, I had a little run-in with Crystal Meth, um, Crystal Meth 1, if anybody ever has any delusions. Yo, if you take on Crystal Meth, Crystal Meth always wins. And a really rough ride with drugs and then into recovery and I had a lot of free time on my hands. I was fit and healthy. Career-wise, things were at a bit of a, a like a bit of a roadblock. And I booked myself on a comedy course um, in New York at uh, American Comedy Institute with Steven Rosenfeld. And the kind of graduating ceremony is a five-minute slot at Gotham Comedy Club. So the first time I ever got on stage with a microphone was in front of a New York audience. If I think Ooh. back, I mean, I start sweating now thinking back about it. And that was in 2014. Uh, Stephen has a, a had at that time a one-year course and he waived the audition and he said, I want you on my course for a year. And I did the maths and the sums of living in New York for a year without much money, got super scared, came back and went back into business. And I buried the dream again. And you know what it is with dreams? They keep knocking on the door. All the while, I'm starting to write material. I'm writing a bit of this, a bit of that. I'm recording on my phone. And then I thought, bugger it. Let me try. A mutual friend of ours, Dory, actually heard that I had some comedy aspirations. And she pushed me into an open mic night, threw me in front of one or two comedians. 
and I it was either sink or swim. I got on stage and I nailed my first gig because there I am live in bars around Joburg. Now, um, the open mic night circuit in Johannesburg doesn't have uh, any comedy clubs as a home. They have There's no purpose-built events for comedy in this country, in Joburg particularly. Uh, it's rough. So while I'm busy doing my five-minute set, my tight five, the cappuccino machine is whizzing in the background. <laughs> I, I was filmed once in a 10-minute set. I had 17 waiters walk either right in front of my mic or right behind me 17 times. So here you are trying to grip an audience that actually didn't go to this restaurant for comedy. They, they're normally surprised, like, oh, shit, there's comedy on now. So there I am trying to make an audience laugh. And, yeah, I've uh, I, if people say you need to pay your dues, I really, really feel I have. You know, when you present into a crowd of seven, not six, seven, and four of them get their meal just as your set starts. <laughs> so there's more focus on their food. And the other three, you know two of them are the DJ's wife and uh, sister. So there's kind of one person in your audience. I got a little tired of that. I mean, I didn't do too much of it because COVID hit. And then I did what I called sit-down comedy, not stand-up comedy. There I was in my lounge with everybody. I mean, doing a Zoom comedy show. Let me tell you what it's like. All the cameras are on and you can see everybody's faces, but all their mics are off. So there's no feedback. So there's a one-way comedy show. So I have zero feedback from the audience. Obviously, they're not looking at the camera, so they're looking away. So I'm focused on why they're not looking at me. And I've still got to continue with my show. I did an international show like that, and I just decided, no, let me just wait until COVID ends before I can get back in front of audiences. Mm. So I got back in front of audiences, and um, the open mic circuit hadn't changed much. There was still a lot of, you know, the dive bars. But it got me seasoned in uh, tough audiences. I once had a microphone that cut out four times. Four times I had to come up and change my batteries. Now, you try and hold an audience in a five-minute set where four times you get a new mic, all right? Like, you can't win an audience like that over. And, of course, presenting my shtick to diverse audiences, you know, people said to me, oh, be careful, you know, you're a white middle-aged male, you come from privilege, you're gay, you're Greek, you're niche, blah, 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 blah. I'm so glad I didn't listen to anyone. Because I get up and I do me. And interestingly enough, the more diverse the crowd, the further people are from me as the way I'm made up, the funnier they find me. My own people find me funny and relatable, but those who pretty much can't relate <laughs> find me quite hysterical. And I, I, I must say, I've, I've really killed it in front of some crowds where they are the opposite of me straight, young, black men. And there I am like really, really getting the laughs that I never thought I would get. For example, you asked me how did it, how did it get to where it is now? Yeah. Well, open mic nights really help you earn your stripes. But what, what I realized was I wanted to control the environment because I knew I had something in me that was of quality standard that given the right sound, setup, comfort level, etc. I could actually deliver a really good performance. Mm. So I wrote a show. Um, I'd always had tons of material and I structured a show. And uh, this is where I'm at now, where I put my show on once in a, in a formal theater and I realized I am definitely a theater comedian. I love theater. 
I love the environment. Um, the feedback is amazing. As a comedian, there's, you, there is n- there's no distraction. There isn't even a flaw that makes a sound. The audience is yours, which is very scary because when they don't find you funny, there's no ambient noise for you to like rely on. So when a joke bombs, and gratefully none of them bombed, but if a joke had to bomb, I would be standing in front of 200 people with nobody giggling. Whereas in a bar... When the joke bombs, there's you know there's always clinking of drinks and machines going, so you don't you don't you don't, you don't mind bombing, but in the theatre it's it's actually relentless. You really need to to be on your game. And I practiced for days, weeks, months, and uh, gratefully now I've got a run that's been booked at a great theatre here, and I'm very excited to finally be able to do the comedy I want to do. Okay, so now let's rewind. You mentioned about that course in New York. Mm. How long were you in New York for and how much of the course did you actually do or did you not do any of it? Okay, so so they're short courses. You okay. basically sign up um, and he takes like five students every two weeks mm-hmm. and the curriculum is pretty much standard and set. Um, you got to jump through certain hoops, some writing classes, mm. some, and then he throws you in with his um, seasoned comics who come to him for added training. So <laughs> they asked me in the first session, they were like, okay, just randomly get up and just present any of the material you've been working on. I'd been working on no material, none, zero. I stood up in front of a class of seasoned comics and I had nothing to say, I had nothing funny to say. I didn't know what he meant by material. I'd never written material before. So he then realized, okay, this guy needs a little bit more coaching. So over the over the couple of sessions with him in private and then in class, he gets you to finish your tight five minutes mm-hmm. that then goes into Gotham Comedy Club. So yeah, it's he runs the courses every couple of months, every couple of weeks. Um, now in COVID, he was online, but now he's getting back into in-person classes in October. And I'm hoping to join one again in person because I did an online one and, and they owe me a slot at Gotham Comedy Club. So I've got unfinished business there. Mm. So why do you call it a tight five? What is that about? So tight five, oh, it's industry speaking. Okay. I, I think I'm so fancy now, like I'm a comedian, I talk like <laughs> one. A tight five. A tight five is, is a set that is tight and limited to five minutes. And it's very different to what happens here in South Africa. I've performed in New York, Austin, Malaysia, and a tight five, when they say five minutes, they are not messing around. Yeah. In New York, there is a light that goes on at like 15 seconds to five minutes. And you know you've got 15 seconds to wrap up. And at five minutes, your mic cuts out. Okay. And the MC comes up. And says, thank you. And Goodbye. says, thank you. Like, <laughs> and, and nobody hears you because you... Your mic is cut out. They don't even let you finish that joke. Oh, in Malaysia, uh, they asked me to do a tight four minutes. And at four minutes, a dong goes off. Ding! <laughs> and then at 15 seconds past four, ding, 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 until you walk off. Like, they're, they're not messing around. They want you to have a tight five. In South Africa, alas, that's not the case. You can go to some open mic nights and somebody can ramble for five minutes. Somebody can ramble for 15, 20 minutes, which I don't like. I prefer structure. It makes you become a better comedian because uh, you got to edit on the fly. And uh, if you see your time's running out because people were laughing too much, you got to cut the jokes. You know, it's it's a, it's a ruthless yeah. practice. But yeah, so you get a tight five, a tight seven, a tight 15. It basically means you're going to keep to that time mm-hmm. and it's going to be a slick performance. Yeah. 
So when you've been in the situations where the waiter's walking in front of you, the microphone's switching off, it's people clanging and eating, and it's not necessarily in the theater, what is going through your mind to say, okay, cool, just keep going, this is practice, do you feel down in that moment? Like, oh, why aren't they listening to me? Why aren't they laughing? What What was going through your space, through your mind and energy at that times? <laughs> you know, I'd love to be as confident as, as I sound, but I'm not. And when I'm up there on stage and then people start bothering me or start making sounds and noises and banging and clanging, <laughs> the personality splits into two. There's the performer, mm. so I'm giving my all. The performance is at full octane. And then there's the judge and I am, I'm swinging my bat wanting to <laughs> murder people who are talking. And then there's my judge who actually just says, right, we're going to take stock here. And I stop and I look to the one table and I say, do you mind? Somebody is doing comedy here. And yeah, it's not cool because it changes the the air in the room. Everybody yes. notices there's somebody who's bossing everybody. But they were bothering the people around them. Yes. You know, that's why I felt the need to do that. I remember, and this, and actually it helped me. I remember walking out of most of my open mic nights, getting in my car, phoning my friend, who would always phone on the way home. His name's Maor. I phoned him saying, I'm never doing this again. The, I, I hated it. I mean, I'm a production value snob. Some places, don't, you, they don't even have the right lighting. So any gestures you're doing, nobody can even see you. Yep. I, I miss it being done properly. I really want it done properly. And and what it did is it forced me to actually find a better way. Well, well, if I'm not getting what I want out of a out of a gig, create your own gig. And that's where a lot of comedians are really acing it because they are creating their own gigs, their own shows, their own open mic nights that they control. And then you really can be master of your output. To write a show that you you've mentioned, you've got a lot of material over that you've gathered over time. How do you align that into a show that lasts? hour, hour and a half. How do I know what to take out, to take in? Is it just practice? Explain more that process. I guess what, what helped me is I, the going on a, on a course on how to write comedy. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a skill that can be taught. And what I realized is I've got a natural way of speaking, of writing, which is kind of like in the same rhythm as set up and punch, set up and punch. Mm. You build the tension, set it up, and then comedy is is in the surprise that comes that nobody's nobody expects. And, yeah. I, and it's kind of something that I do naturally in my everyday life. Uh, it's like the joke in me that always loves that element of surprise. And I pretty much write like that. So writing the jokes wasn't difficult. I sat down, I said, well, what do I want the audience to feel at the end of the show? And I wanted the audience to feel like they got to know me in a deep way, that my comedy gave them a message. And I knew what that message was. I wanted them to feel a, a certain way. So I sat down and I said, okay, well, what do I need to cover for them to feel a certain way? Some of the things I cover are deeply personal and I, I bring humor to them to shine some light on them. Some of them are a little controversial because I want people to sit up and like take notice of what's going wrong in society. I mean, comedians, we, we, we have a lucky advantage where we are allowed to show society. Well, it's our duty to show society what's not working. It's our duty to, I don't want to say duty. I mean, a comedian can yeah, do whatever yeah. the hell he likes. It's easier for us to show people what's wrong with society because I can make you laugh at things that are not nice to speak about. But when you laugh about them, then you break the shell. 
and that's what I wanted to do. So writing the show, I, I, like I, I got all my material, okay, made up of 15 tight five minutes and I dumped them all into a Word document and then I start ordering them around, up, down, up, down. Well, this goes here, that goes mm. there. I'm talking more about be, women there. I'm talking more about being Greek there, gay here, blah, blah. And then you start, you start patting it into shape and then before you know it, an arc starts developing and then you throw half the material away. And that's how I landed up with my 70-minute show, now 10 minutes. The way I was trained is, you know, you've got to hook your one story pretty much kind of needs to hook into the next story to keep the flow going. Yes. But then there's also those moments where you stop and you just start talking about something completely new yeah, yeah. and different. What what I like is, you know, obviously cross-referencing my stories, one story from the beginning to the end and, yeah. you know, tying it up. That was a lot of fun to find those moments where everything comes together and I was very lucky. It all came together quite quite nicely. I then took it to my director. We changed mm. the order of it, and there we go. Had a show. Now, this is a con- interesting question. Well, for me, it's an interesting question. These days, we've got this, which I'm not a believer of, is this whole cancel culture. And a lot of comedians push the boundaries, push the buttons, push the controversies. And there can't be someone in the in the comedian show filming them to say, oh, now cancel this person because they've done this. What are your thoughts around cancel culture, comedy, and the whole elements of where society and what's happening in the world right now? This is a public service announcement. <laughs> Please cancel me. <laughs> I want to get it over and done with. <laughs> and this is the, the, the stress of, of a performer, of a comedian, is the threat of being canceled, you know, kind of looming over you. I'm like, cancel me. Let's get it over and done with, all right, so that my haters will hate me and then they'll fall away because you only get canceled nowadays for the few hours. Um, You know, (laughs) you used to be canceled for life and then it's maybe a few months and, you know, and there's many case studies where it's only a few weeks now, but, uh, but I'd make light of it, but it's true. It's like, I am going to be canceled and I just rather get that over and done with sooner rather than later. The problem with the world today is we know what everybody else is thinking. Mm. We never used to know. I didn't know what people thought in the car next to me because I didn't have access to them. Now I go on Twitter and I can know what everybody's thinking. I don't think it's normal for the human mind to have to assimilate everybody's opinion about everything. I disagree with that in the sense that that don't you believe that is all filtered? So it's not the real thoughts that you're seeing. It's a filtered thought. It, It can also be a filtered thought, but at the end of the day, I'm flooded with other people's thoughts, whether they're filtered or not filtered. Yes. I don't really need to know everything. Yeah. I don't really need to have a strong opinion about a disenfranchised community on the other side of the world for the simple reason is I have enough on my own plates. I have enough going on in my own suburb. I don't even need to look outside of Johannesburg, but I have access to the whole world. And of course, it's turned so many of us into specialists. Oh, <laughs> oh we have so many specialists out there who have opinions about who I sleep with and why I do this and why I do that. You know, cancel culture is interesting. The more you care about what people think, I think the bigger target you are for cancel culture. When people know it doesn't actually bother you what they think, like, a lot of people, I mean, I have opinions about me. The fact that I don't care, they go and talk about somebody else. You know, that's how gossip works. Yeah. People really talk about you if they know it really bothers you. If they know certain things don't bother me, then uh, they'll go somewhere else. But now we're talking about something different. You were saying about controversy. You know, you do need to stick by some common rules around, I believe there are some 
accepted standards around comedy where you can kind of take the mickey out of your own type and your own people. That's fair game. There's an anti-Semitism roast done by my favorite Jewish comedians in New York. And they're all of Jewish descent, mm -hmm. of the Jewish faith. Absolutely. In my show, I uh, some some Greeks get thrown under the bus and, you know, being Greek, being gay, I get to make fun of them. But then sometimes when people are not decent, like indecency and vulgarity, I also sometimes don't mind for the simple reason is it makes people notice the horror of what they're actually talking about. And if comedy and vulgarity is a way to get society to sit up and actually notice things about child trafficking around Anything, criminalization really. of yeah. sex work, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not a sex worker and, and talking and joking about sex workers, you know, if, if your intention is to draw attention to it for the greater good, then yes. But I don't like seeing a comedian on stage um, parodying a beggar on the street. Um, I've seen some of that in South Africa. And I just think, let's, like, let's, come on, guys. You know, we've got warmth tonight. We've got our own drinks we're ordering we're paying for our own meal like do we really need to laugh at the car god who is hustling for his his five rand meal like come yeah. on like yeah like they, that's where decency like you're not you're only doing it to 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 get a laugh you're not trying to draw attention yeah. to their plight and also people need to just relax and people need to stop listening to so much comedy i think they uh, honestly like there are so many comedians around there's so much comedy going on there i don't mind if i have a niche audience if you don't like somebody, just don't watch them. You know, that's not what I'm like with TV. I, I'm, and comedians also, if in the first five minutes I don't like it or they push my buttons or whatever, I just turn it off. I mean, really calm down. So that leads me to my next question. Your top five favorites can be local and international are comedians that you like to watch and listen to. Oh, gosh. My all-time top five, Joan Rivers. We are not worthy. <laughs> All right. That trailblazer, mm. yeah, I like Joan Rivers. There's only there's only one Auntie Joan, and gee, I miss her. She and I watch her roasts. <laughs> I watch her everything. Absolutely love her. The second is a guy called Matt Rife. He's new. He's 24 years old. He's been going for two years, like m kind of mainstream media. He's blown up, and he's a true natural. You know, like in a Steve Martin kind of way. He really is a natural. Please look him up, Matt Ruff. He's unreasonably good looking, mm. like unbelievably good looking, mm -hmm. which is part of the, the charm. But boy, does he deliver on stage. Another one is my, my favorite uh, comedian that does New York style comedy, but Jewish New York style comedy is Modi. M-O-D-I-M-O-D-H-I. Okay. He, he's a... A Sephardi Jew who rips the Ashkenazi off and he does it so well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that makes three. Yeah. In a local context, I love John Vlismas. He is has that Robin Williams mind mm. that thinks all the time and can pull a joke out of, out of thin air and pull a show out of thin air. I've watched him do three shows in a row, three nights in a row, each one was completely different. Like to have that kind of access to material in your brain and mm. in an audience is genius. And I don't know anybody else other than Robin Williams who has his brain capacity and brain power for comedy. And yo, I love his stuff. I need a fourth one, hey? No, fifth one, one more. Oh, fifth one, damn. Stephen Wright. 
um, he left us uh, and there's no more Stephen Wright. But I remember for the five years that he was the, the, the man, nobody copied him because he was, you couldn't copy Stephen Wright. He brought his own, he's the guy who Savannah got their, got their payoff line. Savannah, it's dry, but you can drink it. And uh, I remember when they came out, Stephen Wright was like all the rage. It was the mid to late 90s. And uh, he's never been copied uh, because you can't copy him without sounding exactly like him, a, an original voice. And for that, you know, like a Gary Larson cartoonist, like you, there's only one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, if, and I think he's uh, one in a generation. So those are my five. The podcast is listened to throughout the world. As a final message, what would you like to say? Please cancel me. <laughs> Costa Comedian. At, on Instagram. <laughs> Please support your favorite comedian. Don't listen or watch or support the one you don't like because he won't mind or she won't mind either. And, uh, and thank you to those people who make comedy a night out. In America, it's a date night. It's something people spend a lot of money on. It still hasn't happened like that in South Africa, but it is changing. And uh, yeah, where it's, where it's not allowed where it is illegal, do everything you can to unban it because we need more voices out there that are speaking truths. And yeah, if we make people laugh at some of the bad truths, then so be it. Here we go. As Costa says, laugh, enjoy, and follow who you want to follow. This is Celebs Vint, signing out. 